Hello, and welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax podcast. I'm your host, Carolina Vargas, a legal editor at The Daily Tax Report, and I'm so excited you're here with us today. In this episode of Talking Tax, we'll be covering two major tax cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, one that was just decided March 21st, the other that has oral arguments scheduled for April 16th. The ruling in Marinello v. United States was just handed down. The High Court said that the Internal Revenue Service can only convict a taxpayer on obstruction charges when they can prove the taxpayer was aware of a pending tax-related proceeding, such as an investigation or audit, or that the taxpayer could reasonably foresee that such a proceeding would commence. More on the Marinello decision later. The first case we'll discuss, Wisconsin Central Limited v. United States, which has oral arguments coming up. In the Wisconsin Central case, the High Court will be tackling the issue of whether the stock that the railroads transferred to employees is taxable under the Railroad Retirement Tax Act. We talked to several legal experts to help walk you through how tax cases like Marinello and Wisconsin Central made it to the Supreme Court. The arguments from the taxpayer and the IRS in both cases, as well as their potential impact. Let's get started. Let's first talk about what it takes for a tax case to make it to the Supreme Court. We asked Florida State University tax law professor Stephen Johnson and Patrick Smith from Ivins, Phillips, and Barker Charter to walk us through these cases. Here's Professor Johnson on how these cases make it to the Supreme Court. Usually what happens is they go into a pool and uh, clerks from each of the ju- for each of the justices sit on the pool and if they find a case that the clerk thinks is interesting and worthwhile it'll be taken to the justice and eventually four justices have to vote in order uh, have to vote yes in order for the case to be taken. Professor Johnson said that this case is of significance since not many cases usually make it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't take very many cases at all. Um, in a typical year, the Supreme Court will um, take and dispose of under 100 cases. Patrick Smith also talked to Bloomberg Tax on why tax cases are rarely seen at the Supreme Court level. I think, you know, there's a kind of a general view among tax people, tax professionals, that the Supreme Court really doesn't enjoy tax cases, that they're viewed as, as more of a chore than than a pleasure, um, and I think that's that's fair. I mean, I, I think it's true that more generally, that generalist judges, you know, whether on the Supreme Court or on the courts of appeals, you know, find find the world of tax to be kind of alien. Wisconsin Central is on appeal from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which in May 2017 rejected the 13.3 million-dollar tax refund claim brought by the railroads and determined that under the Railroad Retirement Act, money remunerations weren't limited to cash. The companies argued at the lower court that construing any form of money remunerations as anything other than cash money would render the term money superfluous. The government said that defining the term money remuneration as only cash money would improperly remove any form of from the statute, and that the words, any form of, would themselves be unnecessary if money remuneration referred only to actual cash. Here's Patrick Smith on defining money remuneration. The 
the definition for FICA purposes is that wages, which is the operative term for FICA purposes, are um, all remuneration, including the cash value of remuneration that's paid in a medium other than cash. And I think that the railroads very uh, persuasively say that there's a considerable contrast between the choice of language that's, that, that, that was used in those two similar but distinct contexts and the fact that uh, the term money was used as a modifier to remuneration in the railroad context, whereas in the FICA context, there was clearly an intent to uh, have the definition be more broad and not limited to money or cash. I think their their basic point is that that contrast makes it clear that in, in choosing the term money remuneration, Congress meant what it said, that is, uh, to limit the kinds of compensation or remuneration that are subject to tax for the purposes of the Railroad Retirement Tax Act to basically money, which they, I think, demonstrate hasn't ordinarily been viewed as encompassing stock in a corporation. Here's Johnson on which arguments he thinks hold the most weight in the Wisconsin Central case. Oh, the taxpayer's argument is, is certainly better in this regard. First, what we're talking about here is, is, is a clash about a canon of construction. So it's, it's fairly well accepted that a court should look first to the language of the statute. And if the language of the statute is clear, end of discussion, nothing further is required. If the language of the statute is unclear, then the court will look to a variety of other considerations, including the purpose of the legislature, as gleaned sometimes from the statute itself, sometimes from the pattern of statutes in the area, sometimes from what happened uh, to the statute as it worked its way through the process, that is, what was added, what was deleted from the various versions of the bill, sometimes from committee reports, sometimes from other sources. So, purpose. And in addition to that, canons of construction are used. Wisconsin Central has oral arguments April 16th, so look to us for all the updates on this important case. To round out our discussion on the dispute, here's Pat Smith discussing the potential impact of the case. Okay, well, certainly it'll be an important ruling for the railroad industry, um, but clearly, you know, the provision that's being, that's being, you know, that's at issue here is, is a provision that only affects the railroad industry. So it's hard for me to imagine that it will have a huge impact or really much of an impact at all beyond the specific context of the railroad industry. It's more important to, to give meaning to the, to the term money in the definition of compensation for Railroad Retirement Tax Act purposes. Let's move on next to Marinello v. United States, which just released its opinion on March 21st. We talked to several tax practitioners about the case. The case deals with an obstruction charge brought by the IRS against Carlo Marinello for failing to maintain corporate books and destroying business records. First up to talk about the procedural history of Marinello is Karina Federico, an associate at Steptoe & Johnson LLP. In Marinello, the taxpayer Marinello from 
to through the year 2010 did not keep any corporate books or records. Um, he didn't file any personal or corporate income tax returns for those years either. And the IRS started looking into his uh, tax returns on a tip, um, and they, they began looking at them in 2004. Um, they then uh, brought charges, and he was indicted by a grand jury on nine counts of tax-related offenses that occurred between 2005 and 2009. A jury in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of New York found him guilty on all counts, and he was sentenced to 36 months of imprisonment and one year of supervised release, and he was ordered to pay about $350,000 in the IRS, to the IRS in restitution. And one of the counts he was convicted on was 26 U.S.C. 7212A, and that section of the Internal Revenue Code provides that whoever corruptly or by force or threats of force endeavors to intimidate or impede any officer or employee of the United States acting in an official capacity under this title or in other, any other way, corruptly or by force or threats of force, threatening letters of communications are included, obstructs or impedes or endeavors to obstruct or impede the due administration of this title shall, upon conviction, be fined or imprisoned. Um, and, and it provides the uh, amount of the fine and, and years for imprisonment. And the, the clause that Marinella was convicted under is referred to as the omnibus clause. The omnibus pl- clause is the portion of the section 7212A that I just read to you, um, the portion that says, in any other way, corruptly obstructs or impedes or endeavors to obstruct or impede the due administration of the Internal Revenue Code. Um, so he was charged with the violating this omnibus clause, and that was one of the the counts on which he was convicted by the U.S. District Court uh, jury. And he appealed his conviction then to the Second Circuit, and he presented several arguments to the Second Circuit. He presented an argument that the court should construe the phrase um, due administration of this title referring to the Internal Revenue Code uh, in the omnibus clause to include only when there's a pending IRS action of which the defendant was aware. So he was saying that the conviction can't stand because the government didn't offer any evidence at trial that he knew of a pending IRS investigation at the time um, when he destroyed the, or didn't keep the books and records at issue. And the second issue he presented on appeal was that under conviction under the omnibus clause, it can't be premised on the defendant's omission and, uh, or lack of, of doing something and that the district court committed a procedural error during the sentencing proceedings based on that. Um, the second circuit affirmed the conviction and sentence and then Marinello filed cert with the Supreme Court. Karina also said she thinks the Supreme Court chose to review Marinello because the case covered such broad behavior that taxpayers engage in often, sometimes daily. Matthew Hellman, a partner at Gender and Block LLP who argued for Marinello, said he was pleased that the Supreme Court had rejected the government's broad view of the tax code's obstruction statute. Here's Hellman talking to Bloomberg Tax before the decision came out on how oral arguments went. At argument, the court seemed to be very interested in this question of just how broad is the government's interpretation. Could normal, everyday behavior be swept up 
and called a felony by an aggressive prosecutor. One of the justices called the government's interpretation ungodly broad, uh, which gives you a sense that the court was concerned that what the, the interpretation the government was arguing was just too broad. And what we really wanted the court to understand was that all sorts of legitimate conduct could be swept up under the government's interpretation. So if you go back and look at that transcript, which uh, uh, I have done uh, at this point, you'll see that much of the discussion was about sort of everyday examples of someone who pays a gardener in cash and whether or not that hinders the IRS such that it could trigger an obstruction prosecution if the prosecutor uh, says, I think you did that on purpose in order to impede the tax code and, and, and to either benefit the gardener or yourself. Justice Breyer uh, had an extended colloquy back and forth with uh, both me and the attorney for the government about that question. And that was the, we wanted the court to understand that the, uh, interpretation the government was arguing could sweep up all of that and also take the other crimes that are in the tax code, which are numerous and clear and well set out, and sort of make them all uh, dead letters, because there's no need to charge it as a misdemeanor if you can turn around and charge it as a felony. Nathan Hoffman, a partner at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius LLP and former head of the U.S. Department of Justice Tax Division, had this to say about the court's March 21st decision in Marinello, which sent the case back to the Second Circuit in the 7-2 ruling. The Supreme Court's decision in Marinello has effectively put the brakes on IRS obstruction prosecutions by requiring those prosecutions to uh, show that the taxpayer actually knew that the IRS was investigating or auditing, it, auditing him uh, or had reasonable foreseeability that such an outcome was going to occur. The significance of the decision is, given the fact that the uh, U.S. Attorney General back in May of 2017 instructed all federal prosecutors to charge the most serious violation possible in every case, uh, had the Supreme Court not put the brakes on these type of IRS obstruction prosecutions, which are felonies, they would have effectively turned every misdemeanor prosecution or prosecution for sort of routine um, tax problems that taxpayers have into felony prosecutions. Rounding out our discussion on the Marinello decision, we went back to Professor Johnson on general impressions on what the High Court had to say in its March 21st decision. This case is important as a message to prosecutors to you know, dial it back. Don't treat this, this weapon as infinitely elastic. It's not. Um, so the, the, the important dimension of the case is sending that message. That message was sent, and that's all to the good. Now, there are some problems. The tests that the Supreme Court developed are, are very loose, and a whole lot of... Uh, there's a potential for significant controversy in future cases as to precisely what the court meant in the particular ways that it said it was limiting the omnibus clause. There are several dimensions that will have to be fleshed out by future litigation. But those are the narrow matters. At the broad level, the important thing was the message. 
the right message was sent. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us again next time as we talk about Wisconsin Central's oral argument and track the case as it moves forward. I'm your host, Carolina Vargas, signing off from Crystal City.